in 1 Timothy and chapter 2, and I'm only going to read the first verse of that chapter. And uh, the subject matter, of course, and we've taken, I've taken this from Galatians chapter 6, where I've been preaching from on Sunday nights. And the 10th verse, which says uh, that we are to do good to all men, and especially them of the household of faith. And of course, it comes from the statement where Paul says, God is not mocked, whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. And so for a long time on Sunday nights, I've been sharing with you, sowing to the Spirit, the good side of that, sowing to the Spirit. And of course, that is the basis of the message tonight. And I've taken up the subject of prayer as a means of sowing to the Spirit. And how important that is. Uh, for the Christian and what God has to say about that. And so uh, to start that off, I've chosen this verse, and I'll read just the first one, first verse. And this is where Paul says, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks be made for all men. For all men. And of course, I seeing this as being in distinction uh, or in uh, contrast to those who are of the household of the faith. And, and uh, I believe it's an interesting subject uh, in what ways do we pray for all men or pray for those who are not our brothers and sisters in Christ. I think we know that the Bible has a lot to say about praying for each other, praying for uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ, but that's that was uh, that's what I want to uh, share with you here from this text. Now, as you remember, I had gone back up in part of chapter number one and sharing with you the context because Paul said, "I exhort therefore," and so when we see the word therefore. He's making reference to things that have been said prior to this verse. And it's really interesting uh, what he's doing here. He's writing to Timothy, young Timothy. And in the 18th verse of the first chapter, he says, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy. And so the basis of what he's saying in, uh, in, in chapter 2 uh, is what he has said prior to that, and he is giving Timothy a charge, and he's, uh, he's going to tell him in verse 18, I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. And so it is worthy of pointing out that that's an important thing to be saying prior to praying for all men because of spiritual warfare. And of course, he's saying that to Timothy. And I believe that that has a lot to do with the way we pray for all men. Of course, it's going to, uh, going to say in this second chapter uh, that there's a reason why that we pray for all men and uh, those that are in authority and that we may live a peaceable life or what have you. And, and so uh, the, 
groundwork for that is that he's going to say, he's going to bring this up that there are those, there are those in the world who have abandoned the faith, have abandoned the faith. And he says in verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith made, uh, have made shipwreck. And it, and, and it really is what, it's, what it sounds like. It have thrown overboard, have thrown overboard. And of course, this is talking about uh, people who uh, become apostate, people who uh, claim to be uh, religious or claim to be God's people, and they are able to do that. The truly saved people can't do that, but th- those who are not will and do, and they become a great threat to God's uh, kingdom and cause. And I'm sure that many of you have had experience or know about experience how that much trouble have been caused in the Lord's church and really by those who are being described here. And then in the 20th verse, uh, and, and I've shared this with you, of whom Hymenaeus and Alexander which I have delivered unto Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, of course, that raises the issue what he meant by having delivered unto Satan. Delivered unto Satan. And as I've shared with you, I think this introduces uh, something that is important. It is going to talk, going to introduce the idea to us or the doctrine to us about church discipline. And so what did Paul mean by that? Paul meant that this is what had happened. And of course, um, I had called your attention uh, to 1 Corinthians, and you can turn there, if you would, to the book of 1 Corinthians. And we're going to look in the fifth chapter, and we're going to find that he makes a statement uh, like that in this in the fifth chapter of the book of First Corinthians, and um, the subject really that we would see here is is church discipline. Is it biblical? Is it scriptural? Are we taught that in the Word of God? And how the f- statement that he made turn over to Satan and what that means. And in this passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians and the 5th chapter, he's going to make even a more critical statement related to that. So I, I had just started reading a little bit from this last Sunday night. So in chapter 5 and beginning in verse number 1, he says this, It is reported commonly uh, that there is fornication among you. In other words, this is uh, a sin in the church. And such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. Now this is talking about a sexual relationship that this man in the church was having. And I, I think that it means his stepmother. His stepmother. I, I don't believe it was his mother. It, I'm not saying that it wasn't. But I believe that it means his stepmother mother, uh, this was going on in the church at Corinth. And here's what Paul says about that in verse 2. And you are puffed up. This is He's talking to the church. You're puffed up 
and you have not rather mourned. In other words, uh, the church, uh, it goes on to say that he hath done this deed, it might be taken away from among you. In other words, the church hadn't done anything about that. Uh, I, I think there was a problem in the church at Corinth, and, and Paul uh, addresses that earlier on in the book, and uh, he makes this statement uh, in uh, chapter 1, beginning in verse 10, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the, in, in the same mind and in the same judgment. So there was division in the church at Corinth. That is clear from the very beginning. For it hath been declared unto me uh, of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there is contention among you. And he goes on to spell that out. He says, now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, or Peter, and I am of Christ. Then he asks the question, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And he goes on uh, to address that. Then in chapter number 3, here's what he says beginning in verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. So we get something of the condition uh, of the church at Corinth. He said, I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able, for you are yet carnal. They are carnal. You see, there's another passage of Scripture that talks about that, and they acted like uh, babies, for whereas there is among you envy and strife and division, are you not carnal? and walk as men. So this was something of the condition of the church at Corinth. For while one saith, I am of Paul, another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? And so he describes something of the condition uh, in the church. Now, there's not, the Bible is very clear about this. And we're challenged in the scripture that we're to be of the same mind, same heart, uh, and, and not be divided, and not be divided. And so this gives us some idea of what their concern was, what they were doing, what they were thinking. And of course he says that in verse 2 of chapter 5, are you not puffed up, and you have not rather mourned? In other words, they were not grieved about this. And you know that is the beginning place as far as uh, the New Testament church and the possibility of discipline that is there. It ought to be something that makes the church mourn and be sad because of that. And you know, uh, there's sin in our world. The church exists in the world and there's sin in the world. But according to scripture, there's not supposed to be sin in the church. It's like an illustration that I read one time. You know, a boat in the water is fine, but water in the boat's not, you see. And so the Bible's very clear about that. And uh, this matter 
of church discipline, if you look at it across our world and everything, how many churches do you know that would ever even think about practicing church discipline? How many do you know? There are so very few. There are so very few. And most of the so-called churches in our our country, and I'm talking about Baptist. And you know, I've been around for a long time, and I've uh, I've pastored a four or five that just would not think about that under any condition. And uh, you know, one of the men, he's not with us anymore. He years ago he told me, he said, preacher. We could grow our church more if we didn't if we didn't take people off the church row. I, he he wanted to leave them all alone there, no matter no matter what. And I've told you about pastoring churches that you could die and not get took off the church row. I mean, people. Uh, one church I pastored. I I tell you what we I guess the church averaged about uh, well just very few uh, when I first become the pastor. And uh, it got up to triple what it did at one time. But it, even at that, it was about 100 in Sunday school. And uh, the membership was uh, over 1,000. They were people that had been on, you know, just died and they didn't get took off. They didn't get took off for nothing. As a matter of fact, I could tell you some stories about what people had done in years past. And they were still on the membership row. Still on the membership row. And so it's something that is uh, just not even considered by, by most. And so, and the issue is what he says here about mourning. I, I love our church. I love the Lord's church. I really, really do. He does. He loved the church and gave himself for it, the Bible says. And so this is an a, a important matter. He goes on to say in verse 3, For I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have judged already, as though I were present, concerning him that has done this deed. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan... And then he adds something here to that. And this raises questions in our mind. And he says, For the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to address that a little bit, because I've, I've given a lot of thought over time as to what, what he meant by that, for the destruction of the flesh. Now that's not something that I think uh, a, a New Testament church in our day couldn't do. Turn someone over Satan for the destruction of the flesh. But I do want to tell you this tonight. I believe that the apostles could do that and did do that. Uh, and I believe that that is an apostolic statement. And we understand that there was a period of time after the Lord uh, left this earth and went back to the Father, it was called that apostolic period where there were apostles. There's not today. The last apostle to die was John on the Isle of Patmos. And that ended a period of time. But I want to remind you that during that period of time, they could do that. That was very much a possibility. Look with me in Acts 
And uh, we'll look at a couple of places in Acts. Chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5 is a really good illustration of this. And I'll read a few verses in your hearing. In chapter 5 and verse 1, But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira his wife sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter, and Peter was an apostle. Peter was an apostle. And Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and keep back part of the price of the land? Now there wasn't anything wrong with keeping back part of the price of the land that he sold. That wasn't a problem. The problem was the lie. The problem was to lead them to think that he had sold that possession and was bringing it all to lay it at the apostles' feet or give it to the church. That's what he, was, that's what he had done. And him and his wife both uh, were in cahoots on this little plan that they had to make, make them think that he had brought it all. But they lied, and what Peter says here is they had lied to the Holy Ghost, lied to the Holy Spirit. Now you might say, well, how did Peter know that? Well, he was an apostle, and they had powers and abilities that no one else but an apostle would have. And the Bible talks about bringing sick people and to the shadow cast, I think it was Peter, I'm not sure, and being healed uh, by that. And he goes on to say in verse 4, while it, whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was so, was it not in thine own power? And why hast thou conceived this thing in thy heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. Now that's pretty serious, what, these, what, what he's being accused of. It was pretty serious. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost, and great fear came on all them that heard these things. You say, well, what happened to him? He dropped dead. Now remember, this is an apostle. He dropped dead. Now this is the reason why I say that this is apostolic language when it talks about delivering one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. It actually could happen. It actually could happen during that period of time. And it goes on to say in verse 6, And the young men arose, wound him up, and carried him out and buried him. Now it wasn't like a funeral today. That didn't happen then. They took him straight out and put him in the ground. Just took him straight out. And it was about a space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And can you imagine, you know, she would say, what happened to my husband? He's been buried, and she didn't have anything to do with that. And he goes on, and Peter answered unto her, tell me whether thou sold the land for so much? And she said, yea, for so much. And Peter said unto her, how is it that you have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them that have buried thy husband 
are at the door to carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. And the young man came in and found her dead and carried her forth and buried her by her husband. Now the reason I shared that story uh, with you here in this passage is to say that what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians, we need to understand that that was a statement made by an apostle, and it was possible that it could happen. That one could be uh, kicked out, taken out of the church for a sin, for something that was wrong, and it was the possibility that they would experience that very thing uh, during that apostolic period. Now, do I think that the church has any such ability? No, I don't. But do I think the church ought to, according to the scripture, practice church discipline? Absolutely, absolutely. We are actually commanded to do that. And, uh, you know, it's not something that we delight in or take joy in. Uh, I mean, it's been something that bothers me. I mean, when he says mourn, I, I understand the feeling that is there. And so church discipline, it is important that the church be ma- uh, maintain purity as much as is possible. And it can hinder the work of the Lord. It can hinder the work of the Lord. And I, I want to tell you that I know I know from church history. I mean, I've, I've one that has studied that uh, over the years. And, and I can tell you there was a time. There was a time right here in the state of Kentucky that if, a, that if it was a Baptist church, then it practiced church discipline. I, I remember the first church that I pastored. And it was 40-something years ago. And I got to digging. Of course, you couldn't have uh, twisted their arms and get them. If, if somebody mentioned disciplining someone, uh, you know, it would have been just, well, uh, awful. And, and uh, I got to digging in church records. And I found out that there was, there was some old, very old records. And I'll tell you what, it was, I read it and it was so funny about so-and-so being brought before the church for playing a fiddle at a, at a party and dancing. <laughs> and he got disciplined for, for that. Yeah, just all kinds of stuff like that. You say, was there a time when about any Baptist church would practice church discipline? And the answer to that is yes, there was a time. Is it that way today? No, it's not. Very few would be willing to obey the Bible, obey the Scripture. And to me, it is no wonder that so many churches are just struggling along, having to use uh, means uh, uh, that you, just whatever you could imagine, to keep the church going or whatever, you know, and, they, and people just don't have... You know, you know, I want to tell you all something tonight. This Bible that I hold in my hand is a serious matter. It's, it is, it's God's Word. It's God's Word to us. And so I, I know that even in probably, in probably in our church, there are people that maybe think that uh, we, shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't do that. But I want to tell you something. I believe that the Bible says that you should. I believe it should. And we find also in that book of Acts, in the 8th chapter, an interesting, uh, interesting passage there. The Bible tells us... Uh, 
if I could start maybe with verse number 9. But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and, and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that he himself was some great one, and uh, to whom they all gave heed, from the least of them to the greatest, saying, This man is great, has the great power of God. And to him they had regard, because that for a long time he had bewitched them with sorcery. Now this was, uh, this was a man who uh, used sorcery, witchcraft, whatever. And verse 12 is an interesting verse. But when they believed Philip's preaching, the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So what does it mean? Does it mean you've got to believe the right thing? Yes, it does. The Bible does say that. You need to believe the right thing uh, in, to be baptized. Then Simon himself believed also, and when he was baptized, continued with Philip, wondering and beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Then I want to jump over to verse number 20. And uh, what, what, he, what he did was, uh, he had said, verse 18, And when, when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money. He offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the, the Holy Ghost. And notice this in verse 20. But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Now, you know... Uh, Peter, again, you have an apostle speaking, apostle speaking, and we would be careful about making that judgment that someone's heart was not, we, we probably would pretty much consider that it was so if something like that happened. You see what I'm saying? But Peter could say that. And he went on to say in verse 22, Repent therefore of this thy wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee, for I perceive thou art in the gall of bitterness, in the bond of iniquity. And verse 24, Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye to the Lord for me, that none of these things which you have spoken come upon me. So during that period of time, there, there could be a person that is turned over to Satan in excommunication. Now, I would say this related to that, even though that was an, something that happened during this period of time, uh, they, they were capable of inflicting bodily disease and suffering and death. They could do it. I just shared that with you. It happened. Uh, but we live in a time when I can't do that, as a church, when we discipline, when we have to discipline somebody, uh, the sense in which they are turned over to the Satan is this, I believe. I, I'm a firm believer in safety in the fold. I believe that. I remember one time years ago that I preached a sermon and titled it that, Safety in the Fold. 
And I believe that when we're part of the Lord's church, that there's a, there's a degree of protection that is upon us. I believe that with all my heart. I believe that. I'm thankful to be a part of a New Testament church. And I believe, I believe that outside that, I believe outside that realm, I believe it's in Acts chapter 26. I'll, 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 yes, in Acts chapter 26, I, I want to show you something that the Lord said unto to Paul. And verse 15, And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. This is when he was struck down on the road to Damascus. And Jesus says these words in verse 16. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and witness both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things, uh, those things in the which I will appear unto thee. So, I think that is uh, amazing. Here, here is Saul of Tarsus. He's on his way to take into possession Christians. He was persecuting the Lord's people. He was persecuting the Lord's people. And guess what happened? A miracle took place in his life. A miracle did. I preached this morning, how does the Lord reveal himself to his people in our day? And I mentioned the fact that it doesn't happen to us like it happened to Saul of Tarsus, for us to hear the voice of our Lord and say, I am Jesus. And I've been sharing with you that how he reveals himself is through the doctrine of the new birth, of the new birth. And I shared with you the point this morning of how that it takes place by a union of the soul with Jesus Christ. And Paul called it a mystery it is a mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And every person that is genuinely saved, what has happened to them is that Jesus became part of them, came to live within them. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. But uh, Jesus is talking to them, talking to him. Uh, he says in verse 17, to deliver thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee. And verse 18 is such an awesome verse. Here's what he says. To open their eyes all through the preaching of the gospel, the Spirit of the Lord uses His Word. We're born of the Word, James said. Uh, he has begotten us by the Word. And so... He honors His Word. I've said this before. There is no question whatsoever in my mind that the Bible teaches the doctrine of election. For anybody to deny that, they just have to, they might as well take a razor blade and cut certain things out of their Bible because it is taught that clearly. It is taught that clearly. And I've been asked the question many times over the years, what is the basis? If God did that before the foundation of the world, if He chose His people as Ephesians chapter 1 so clearly says, so clearly says, well, 
I'll just read a few verses of that. Since I mentioned it, it won't hurt. It, I know you know what it says, but it wouldn't hurt a bit if I was to read these words. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. Christian, don't you dare ever go against that. That's what it says. That you were chosen in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. In Christ. You see? Isn't that amazing? That is an amazing passage of Scripture that says that. And so we are, we are chosen uh, in Christ. Now in this Acts passage that I was reading, uh, that I lost, but I'll find it again right quickly. It's in chapter 26. And um, here's, here's, what it, here's what it says. In chapter 26... And um, in the 18th verse, he says, Jesus, tell him I have uh, called thee and appointed thee, he says in verse 18, to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light. And here's the statement. And from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sin, and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. From the power of Satan. Paul preached. People were saved. They were baptized. They become members of the church. And guess what? Satan don't have any power in the Lord's church. Outside, he does. So, to turn them over to Satan. Now, there, there is a sense. Uh, he goes on to say this, I'll say, that they may learn, that they may learn, is the devil their teacher? No, he's not their teacher. But you know what? Sometimes people don't need a teacher to learn. A teacher to learn. I think it's a serious matter when someone uh, is dismissed from a New Testament church. I think it's a serious matter. We, we don't do that. We don't deliver them unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. But the Lord may permit certain things to happen as a result of that. And the Bible would teach us, and when, when we pick this back up again, I'm going to show you what the church at Corinth did and what the result of that was. And I've said it this way a lot of times. I believe that church discipline ought to be viewed uh, in this way. It ought to be not punitive. I don't think it's our place to punish anybody. But it ought to be redemptive. It ought to be redemptive. And just like what Paul was saying there, 
It ought to be something that would make people stop and think. And it did in this situation. And I'll share that with you the next time. Father, we praise you and thank you for the opportunity that's been ours to take this subject up. It's not a subject that's popular. It's a subject that many, many, many uh, churches, if that's what they are, have decided this is one area where we will not obey what you teach us. But Father, I thank you that I can be a part of a church that is that desires to do what you want and to follow you and to do those things that you command. And Lord, uh, do it morning, morning over that. So bless us, Lord, as we sing this closing hymn. Have your will and way in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Would you stand with me now while Aaron leads us in a closing number? <laughs>